Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone. And today we're going to talk about this question, what if God wasn't some external being out there, but actually an experience of certain brain states where the ordinary sense of self is transcended? In other words, is it possible to have a direct experience of God? Here today to talk about that is Sally Ornstein. She's the wife of Robert Ornstein, who was considered one of the foremost experts on the brain, was an internationally renowned psychologist and author of more than 20 books on the nature of the human mind and brain and their relationship to thought, health, and individual and social consciousness. He's perhaps best known for his pioneering research on the bilateral specialization of the brain, continually emphasizing the necessity of conscious evolution to meet the challenges of the 21st century. He taught at Stanford University, Harvard University, and the University of California, San Francisco. And his books have sold over 6 million copies worldwide, had been translated into dozens of languages, and used in more than 20,000 university classes. He founded the Institute of the Study of Human Knowledge in 1969 and served as its president until his death in December of 2018. Sally, welcome to We Earth Radio. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, well, lovely. Well, you took this book on and finished it for Robert and were able to get it out here. His final book, which I know you worked quite a bit on. In fact, you probably spent, uh, what, a couple of years putting it together. Well, I was, in a sense, lucky that I was in isolation because of COVID. So <laughs> that was what I was doing night and day. And I kept my own hours and it was perfect. It was a good opportunity and I learned a lot. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, let's start out talking a little bit about you and Bob and your relationship and how he worked and how you worked together. A little bit of background before we get into the book. It really was quite, quite, as I say in the preface to the book, Bob and I met and we really, both of us knew that we saw what we wanted out of life and what we needed to understand was exactly the same. I mean, Bob was uncompromisingly searching for truth mm -hmm. and I was too. And he had a better way of doing it because he was a, um, uh, had written about it, which is how I first um, met him through the first book, The Psychology of Consciousness. Bob was um, really uh, an amazing mind. He would read everything. And I used to um, laugh about it. It's sort of like you could tell what he read today because there were the detritus of books going through corridors and into this room and that room and out to the deck where he would spend hours just basically what it would look like was he was doing nothing, but that's how he worked. Whereas I'm not like that. I will wake up in the middle of the night and 
get an insight about something, write it down. And then the next morning I have to talk about it. I mean, I have, once I get it out there, then I can understand it and move on. So it was quite an interesting relationship, but it, he also had this amazing ability to come down to talk to anybody. If you sincerely asked him a question about anything, he would be so succinct and so clear and get you a, a book to read on it. And I mean, it was just perfect for me. I had a, a very unlike him kind of for that, for the generation of being a middle-class English woman, I was put in this convent school and, um, my sister, who was a goody two-shoes, um, used to go back to reunions at the convent. And on one of these reunions, a lady rushed up to her and she was in tweeds and she looked kind of homely. And she said to my sister, Pamela, I used to be Mother Bernadette. Tell me, how is Sally doing? So Pamela said, oh, she's great. She's living in California with a psychologist. And She's, and she, the woman, the nun said, and the saints be praised at last there's someone to answer all her questions. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what life with Bobby was like. I mean, I would be reading something. I said, well, how does that work? And, and so then I got for the book, for how we got into the book, I was looking, reading about my own background, my own religious background, because I really wanted to understand how these things have a hold on you, even long after you don't believe they're literally true. They still sort of somehow have a way of still grasping you. And um, my mentor and friend, Idris Shaw, once told me, if you want to understand how these beliefs and things, how they, and you want to free yourself from them, you have to go into the background. You have to see how these religious traditions evolved and how they trans how where they came from how they were generated and how they kind of became derivative or he didn't say that but that's what they've discovered you know that becomes like a, a story that is in some of his collections by Nasruddin and Nasruddin is this folk hero and he has um, and a neighbor comes that's right a relative comes from the the country and brings him a duck so they roast the duck and they eat the duck for dinner and uh, he goes off. And then the next couple of days later, somebody bangs at the door. It's a complete stranger. And the guy says, oh, I'm a friend of your relative who brought you the duck. So Nasruddin makes duck soup. And then a couple of, and the friend goes off. He's quite happy. And then a couple of days later, there's a knock on the door and Nasruddin opens this another stranger. Well, I'm a friend of the friend of the friend who bought uh, who, of the relative who brought you the duck. And this goes on interminably. And eventually uh, the doorbell goes and there, um, or the ratatata, and he opens the door and, and they he invites him in and they sit down and the guest says, but this this doesn't taste like duck soup at all. He says, no, no, uh, Masruddin says, no, no, it's the soup of the soup of the soup of the soup of the duck. <laughs> and that's somehow that, my, that my, my relative brought. That's somehow the way I think religions have gone. Mm. The yeah. essence, the origin of the, the insight of the prophets and spiritual teachers is very much what we're talking about in God 4.0, these original yeah. insights. And in the book, we've tried to describe how not only what these insights 
were in a sense, by definition, they're non-verbal intuitive insights, but we're trying to describe how this non-verbal insight, the only way that the prophets then could talk about it was in metaphor. Mm -hmm. So you get what, you get terms like angels, son of God, stories, storytellings that people understood were metaphorical, that actually what once you absorb them, trip you into this higher consciousness, help you get to the other side, the more intuitive side of your brain. Yes, yes. Well, the name of the book is God 4.0 on the nature of higher consciousness and the experience called God. Yeah, just bringing up what you're saying about the, the you know, we'll get into the different levels of of god but the whole idea of religion and how your story shows how it's watered down and also a lot of that had to do with organizing people and power over people and justifying absolutely things like genocide and to use as control so the the power also watered down the original metaphors and stories and ways that people would try to show people that which couldn't be shown, especially through couldn't language. be described. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think that that began as we talk about in the book in, in Paleolithic times, sort of when we first became modern man 35,000 years ago, it's likely from, to cut a long story short, but from the research that we've done that, the majority of people were did have shamanic abilities, did did have other insights. Otherwise, it's unlikely really that we would have existed. There were too few people, and you're in the ice age for 25,000 years, and you're a band of say 12 people. You you need other perceptions than we that as Bob says in the book was now taken up with reading, writing, cash flows. Excel sheets, you know, whatever <laughs> you were able to put into that, into, were part of that intuitive perception. I mean, and we mention in the book the um, contemporary shaman Bearheart and how he describes how they were educated to to sense the trees, the nature, and then to start to internalize that and to sense themselves, and they begin to perceive things that we've forgotten how to do. I, I think that basically we have it, but we don't use it, then we lose it, right? Yeah, and so many of these two, well, several thoughts on that. So many of them were oral tradition. And also the, the writings were another thing. They're the oral traditions that changed to fit the times more or less. Although I think you use the word presentism, looking yes. at the past, Yes. Through the yes. lens of now, you, you know, you can't possibly understand what they're doing from that perspective. One of the things I think that's powerful in shamanism in that area is the idea of, of trance and of ecstatic dance and the ways that take you beyond that normal level of consciousness. And I'm sure we're going to talk about the parietal lobes and, and we'll get to that and the default mode and those kinds of things. But just in looking at the, the historical perspective, let's talk about the, the God 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, and the kind of 
evolution that you map out in in the book God 4.0? Okay, well, as I said, we start with the Paleolithic times 35,000 years ago when the spirit world, it was an animistic world and that's, you know, spirits everywhere, everything has a spiritual entity that the trees are breathing spirits. They're alive. Yeah, they're alive. Yeah. But yeah, well, they are. <laughs> okay. I mean, and again, but they, they, they were more, I mean, animistic cultures, there's so many more connections than we have in right. monotheism. I mean, it's just remarkable. Even now, I mean, I was in Shogbo in Western Nigeria, in Eastern Nigeria, sorry. And a snake almost bit me and you've no idea the implications of all this. It bit somebody else, but there's this whole connections everywhere. People was, you know, it was quite difficult to understand what in fact was going on. <laughs> but, and then once, once at the end of the ice age, 11,000 years ago, you start the Neolithic era, people come out of the caves and immediately there's more to eat. It's easier. Population grows. Then of course you need control at that point our original priests, the shaman, become more priests. Mm -hmm. They have to control, the, pre the elite start to control the majority. And they do this through these huge megalithic buildings that involve hundreds of people and, and the celebrations and extraordinary findings that they found of the, the, the strategies that the elite had to connect to um, control, control the population. Right. And it also, in by the same token, it increased our us. It's almost like a scientific revolution. They they understood astrology because they needed to control how you know the how the sun goes through and then the solstice goes through into the dead graves below, and how if you go to the hypogeum in Malta, there's a, a it's a subterranean cave, and you talk through one wall and it I mean it's amazing it goes through all around and it's just like you have this huge voice come at you that you you is godly <laughs> you know it's like otherworldly you know so they knew what they were doing and a lot of the they found again in Malta that these um the doors are such to keep people out was not to let people in so they were very carefully orchestrating just like the, the temples at Delphi. They orchestrated this. You get the feeling you're going through a cave experience because of the way the brain is wired. So in, in integral to this is the, the understanding of the cosmos and that began in Paleolithic times, you know, the, the heaven above the land, the land where we live and, levels. The, and the crypts below, which we still have in our churches and yeah. our mosques, you know, I mean, we don't lose these things. And that's what's very, very interesting. We are wired to have these transcendental experiences. And what the book is saying that now is the time because it's only by getting out of ourselves that normal small world self that we will be able to face the problems clearly that we have today, which are global. It's only through developing this latent capacity which we talk about at length in the book, as you, as you see, you know, that, that we'll be able to overcome to the solutions that we can. It's sort of, it's almost like, was it, you're looking at people say, come on, we could walk. Why are we all crawling around still? <laughs> you know, it, 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 so this capacity for greater perception 
is important, as, as Bob would say, the new mantra sh should be, it's not what you believe, it's what you perceive. That, well, that brings us to a, a big question, and I, I did question it in the book, it's not what you believe, it's what you perceive. So, you know, most people, when we talk about perception, it's like, I, I'm seeing what's here. So what I perceive is what's here, but actually what we perceive is based in what we believe and what we have learned. Uh -huh. Absolutely. And that's the small world. Right. That is the small world. I mean, we, we, we perceive a less than a trillionth of the airwaves. Up. So, I mean, that's what we're dealing with, right? We all have, and the rest of it, it I mean, it, we have the basic biology. Otherwise, I couldn't, you couldn't pour a, pour a cup of coffee out into a cup. You'd be, it would, so they, we're wired the same. But most of our internal life in this small world is caught up with our own interpretation, our own experiences. So we end up sort of in these, what Bob calls the imaginarium, which is much to do with the default mode network, which we'll talk about later, where we're all, you know, oh gosh, what's he gonna think of me? Oh gosh, I'm late for the kid, the kids for school. I've got to pick this and I got to cook this, da 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 da. Oh, and I went there last night. Why did I say that? All that kind of rabbiting on, as we say in England, you just go bit, 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 bit. All that stuff is pretty much has evolved from our own experiences. So my my view of myself is very is very different from. My real, my sense of myself is very different from how you sense yourself because we have both difficult, different black backgrounds. But beyond that, what we're talking about in the book is to tr tr transcend that small world, which all religions have advised uh, to shun, shun the world. That's what they mean, shun this small, normal, confined, tiny consciousness and move before. away from it right? The world of form. Yes, and move away from it. And the keys to doing that and, and not to, and to recognize that it's non-verbal is, is, and when you're talking about perception, to get back to what you said, which I've gone rather on a tangent to, but I was thinking today, it's really, the experience of it is different from, I'm perceiving this, I'm expecting this, and this is what I think it is. It's much more a non-verbal experience that manifests in action. So it, it, it's sort of something that you you would um, you'd sort of you'd have an idea. Uh, you say, "Well, why don't we do so and so?" Or well, let's do so and so. No idea why you're saying it, but it works. Mm -hmm. And you can't say. I mean, you see it sometimes in sports. I remember seeing Magic Johnson back in the day. And he would be going ambling, almost ambling along, and then suddenly he'd throw the ball behind him. Right? You think, well, how did he know Worthy was behind him and he had to go, or whatever, you know? I mean, and you know that when people get what Chicks and Mahaley called in the zone, right, in the flow, or the that's, that's part of that continuum of towards higher consciousness. That's part of that intuitive capacity that we need to develop. So how does perception relate to higher consciousness? How do you, how do you resolve that beyond self, that transcendence, you know, to get beyond the... How do you sort of, what would, what would, well, okay, I can only, as they say, you know, the, the ways to enlightenment are as many as the hearts of men. So it's just what I've understood thus far, correct? Right. Okay. Now, 
So the first thing I think that one one really has to bring to mind is is self observation. You really, if you're going to want to overcome this secondary self, this this moronic idiot that's <laughs> constantly wanting to control you and wanting you to making you want more or whatever it does, right? Mm-hmm. The aspect of the self that religions advise you to shun. I think it's very necessary to self-knowledge is important. And how do you go about that? I think again, um, Bob so succinctly describes that probably better in the evolution of consciousness. I don't know whether you know that book, but yeah. when he talks about these um, many cells, which he calls simpletons, they're all, they've all got their own agenda. You, you see somebody and when you last saw them, they behaved in a certain way and up comes your, your little guy in the trolley who's decided, oh, I can deal with him, you know, and takes over and you think, why when I meet that guy, am I always behaving like this? You know, but it's, you haven't consciously thought, well, who's, who's, the, who's the me that's doing this? And so with self, by seeing these, I, I think the first time he wrote Multimind, I think it was, it was in, and I immediately thought, oh, this is a splendid way to understand how to observe yourself because you don't have to feel guilty about it because you've got so many of these creatures all doing their own thing. So, you know, so well, I don't know. Let's look. I'll oh, get my God, when I use this. this one. <laughs> 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 Someone says, finally, yeah, but, but through, you get to, I mean, you get to name them, right? You, because they're your, your, you see them so often, so you get to name them, and I don't know, but I think eventually you kind of they get weaker. I don't know because you get strong. The observer gets stronger, mm-hmm. and I think once the observer gets stronger, you've got more control over giving up this selfishness because the prerequisite actually for developing this secondary system of con- the second system of cognition is is that it's selfless it's nothing to do with me first it's the complete antithesis of me first you're not going to connect to humanity if you're thinking about me there's a, a lovely quote that I, there's a quote i love well, from a, a sufi called baudin nakshband who said in order to know the relationship between the drop and the sea we have to cease thinking of what we take to be the interests of the draw. I love that. And I want to take a word out of that too. And that's relationship. Because when you're when we're talking about the formation of a self and then self-awareness, well, how does a self get formed? It gets, there's the inheritance of the ancestral things that come down. There's the familial influence. There's the cultural influence. All of these influences are also heavily, very heavily influenced by early adaptive behavior. Absolutely. Did I get the nurturing? Did I get the love? Did I get the touch? Did I get seen and heard and felt? And in that aspect, we make up stories which create, you mentioned guilt, guilt and shame, which a lot of it is shame because it's like shame. Guilt is I did something wrong so I can do something about it. Shame is I am wrong. I am bad. There's something wrong with me. Mommy was right. I did it wrong. (laughs) Right. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. That's one of mine. (laughs) So to try to know yourself as you're saying, I think from as a therapist, that 
because we learned to co-regulate before we learned to self-regulate, right? Our yeah, ability, yeah. Oh, absolutely. To, yes. our ability to self-regulate is based on how we were nurtured and brought up. Mm-hmm. So in order to actually be able to see the self, and I'm getting back to the relationship part, we can only see it in relationship to others. And I think that's one of Bob's messages really is about connection, that it's all about connection. Somewhere you mentioned, mentioned that, that the actual being able to see the self has to happen in relationship to something or someone else so that we have those mirrors to be able to say, uh, this is a self and this is where I carry shame or guilt, or this is where I think I'm bad or good or that, you, you yeah. know, where, where, we, where we get all of those things. So that's a really important aspect of knowing the self. And that's, I think you're saying the foundation from the ability to disconnect from normal consciousness and transcend into a higher sense of consciousness, if I'm following what you're saying and what the book says. I think that it's all the aspects of that you're talking about are part of what you have to observe. And right. you know that those are the guys that you're dealing with. Okay. But once you, you know, you obviously everybody has bad days, but once you recognize there's a poor me or I press the wrong button is one of mine, or <laughs> it's called like, oh, <laughs> you know, what we used to say to me, it's going to be on your tombstone. I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> you know there's all these people that you know you just have to say forget it that's what I'm like okay I'm not but I'm not gonna let it ruin my chances if you like I'm not gonna let it inhibit me and you know there's more to everybody knows that this capacity is innate in them I mean look at the look at kids look at how they're miraculously do things they have no idea how amazing they are until somebody tells them and then it starts to go wrong or tell them it's not or it is but I mean those of us who are I mean I, I paint and when when I'm rarely but when I am there it, it's exquisite what how you can be in in a timeless space that placeless space and create and it can inform you in ways that you didn't know were um, anything you needed to know. I mean, it, it, I, 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 that's what I often think of when you, when your people ask you, when you're in art school or somebody ask you, well, what's your content? And I would tend to say, if it's really working, I won't know for another bit. I don't know quite now. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, so it's, again, we don't, you're not necessarily knowing, and like take poetry. I mean, people write the most extraordinary things when they're in the zone. They don't always understand what they're writing until afterwards. And, you know, but that's this part of the brain. This second system of cognition is on a continuum. It starts with little insights of minor problems and right up to, you, you know, artists and Michelangelo, Einstein, Ramanujan, people like that, and then on with much discipline and effort to the prophets and spiritual teachers, I think. Those are the only way these prophets and spiritual teachers could describe the experiences by talking about, as what's it in 10th century, Al-Hajj said, I am the truth, and Al-Haq, it 
I mean, he was saying, I am truth, right? And in at the time when he said that, that was blasphemy, but he was doing it sort of at least for two reasons, to, to try to describe this nonverbal experience, but also to bust up this normal mentation, this normal way of, of thinking of the world, this is right, this is wrong, in this small world, to bust up that barrier, which we talk about a lot, to bust through so that it's like the, the Cohen somehow, you know, uh, show me your face before your mother and father conceived you or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know, one of those things. I mean, they're just supposed to bust up the way you normally think of things to turn you over into that second system of cognition. Well, let, let's talk about that. So first of all, we're saying, okay, you need to have a sense of yourself. And then in order to reach yeah, a transcendent state, you have to figure out how to go beyond. So right. there's ways that, should we talk about brain theory first or just jump into the fact that we have to somehow that narrative we call self has to be transcended. So something in the brain has to be overridden for us to be able to, to move into those higher states of consciousness. And you talked about the second system. Maybe, maybe we should start with that. Yes. Well, really that's Bob's expertise, isn't it? But I'll have a go. I mean, but he does describe it very well in the book. Basically um, I think um, the point that we're making in the book is that now we understand the neurobiology of that second system of cognition, how it switches into that. We are no longer attributing emotional connotations to it because a lot of the time when, you, when you're over-emotional about something, it's not where you want to be because this second system of cognition is quite quiet. Right. It's again, Baudin Nakshban said, remember that perception and illumination will not at first be of such a character that you can of them say this is perception or this is illumination. Hmm. What we know neurobiologically is that there is this default mode network that is in the brain that a guy called Rachel discovered in two, 2001. And Bob describes it in the book it's as if at the end of the day, you're, you've had a hard day and you sit, you lie around in, the, in your hammock and you're, but while you're doing that, all your your thoughts that we I was talking about a while ago, all those thoughts about what I said, what he said, what shall I do, the roast's burning, why is Harry always behaving the way Harry does, and da 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 da, da. you know, all those social and self-reflectory aspects of you has to really, they have to dissolve. And once those they dissolve, you start to move the barriers. And at the same time, he talks a lot about the right parietal lobe, which basically, when it's activated, keeps us in time, space, gives us the sense of this self that we're trying to get out of the way of. The right parietal lobe puts you, it, it covers an awful lot of aspects of keeping us in the world, keeping us in location. It's got a lot to do with Mathematics, not, not the left side of mathematics, not the literal numbers, but the ideas of quantity, which have a lot to do also with spatial and time, keeping us in, in whatever we, this thing we call time. So, so when, you, uh, when you block that 
when right that's deactivated, you open up exactly. a channel to beyond space time, or you that's what the, the they time. often yes people describe it as as spacelessness and timelessness. There's no space. There's no time. I mean, I, I think it's a uh, you know poets do that. T. S. Eliot is great, a good one of that. And of course, so is Jalaluddin Rumi, you know, my place is places, my time is timeless. You know, I mean, I think that's the, that's the, the, the aspect that we can develop, that aspect in which we can intuitively understand and have solutions to problems because we're all connected, really connected, not just connected, you know, I connect to you because you've got a nice smile and I like the da da da, whatever else, whatever else we build on to that thing. You know, I mean, it's not that connection. It's a it's a much more intuitive, but it is a connection. And it's built very much on the fact that as Bob so describes so well in the book, and I love this, you know, the door starts when we sort of stand up and we're bipedal and then we've suddenly got to be nurtured in the world. 75% of our brain is develops in the world. So that connects us to each other, it must. And it right. It's spacious without separation. So that Absolutely. It's one or it's as if we were all one. Yeah. And everything was one. Which of course is I am me and you are. What was that Beatle thing? I am me and we are. We are all together. Uh, I can't remember. What do you remember that? (laughs) Oh yeah, I definitely remember that. This transcendence that happens, we can cultivate that transcendence. Yes. And one of the ways that you and Bob did that was working with uh, Indira Shah and Sufism. And talk about some of the ways that that helped create more of that spacious, interdependent. The Buddhists have a wonderful word for it called interdependent co-arising, that everything is related to everything else and is co-arising in our connection and interconnect. But how does Sufism, what, what are some of the ways that the Sufi stories, of course, but, but some of the other, like this, the twirling is another thing that I was always fascinated by in the Sufis. Well, the twirling one of the most important things about studying Sufism is it, it works in accordance with the time, the place, and the circumstances. When Jalaluddin was in Konya developing with his uh, collection of people and developed this dervish twirling, he did so because they were an extremely phlegmatic bunch. They were very, they were emotional dullards, unlike us. So you wouldn't give us twirling because it wouldn't work. You just, you just get nutcases, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and, you're, and you're trying to develop something that enables you to be able to drive into a diff- in a different kind of gear at the same time as you're living in the world, working in the world. It's there. It's there. So you're t- trying to develop this adjacent to your ordinary life. Okay, so you start, you're reading, you're reading these um, stories, Idris Shah, who was the last, uh, he died um, in 1996, I believe, but he left a body of um, stories, narratives, poetry, that have this ability, uh, are instrumental, are able to foster through the structure of the stories, through they provide a blueprint which, when you expose yourself to them often, 
enables you to give that blueprint to settle in the mind. So it's kind of like if you were learning, if you were learning a language, for example, or to ride a bike or something, you have to keep doing it, you have to keep practicing it. And finally, you know, there it goes, you're suddenly thinking in French, and you think, whoa, this is pretty, this is pretty. So when you're familiar with these stories, and then the stories, I don't know how to say, so you know, it's like you have your own bunch of things you're you're constantly churning over because you you expose I mean I read them every day so they're there they they just churn around and then your experiences your choices your experiences come back and inform you more and then you read the stories understand more and you go out you do something and then it just works like that constantly mm. but it's again it's again it's not it's not something I can describe because it's not Describable. Well, I can say the easiest way for me to say is I'm incredibly lucky. <laughs> that's the. <laughs> it, that, that's what you get up feelings like. Goodness, how did that happen? It constant, you know. But it's because you're constantly going back and thinking about things, and as you're studying, you're studying more about how more succinctly to observe yourself and not to trip. So that you don't, because you can't have an experience unless it's for fun or thrills or peace of mind or whatever. If you really want to try and cultivate truth, a knowledge of truth, insight, how love, knowledge, all these things with the capital letters, what they really mean, you've got to keep pushing yourself out the way and you might have something you think well that's the answer well it's not because you've got a long way to go before you find the answer if there ever is the answer you know what I mean so it's it, it's um a sort of it's just feedback you're coming I suppose you keep studying you keep seeing things you keep your life goes on and um you find more areas in which you are useful Mm. that's another thing because key to it is service yeah. key to it you every tradition all the traditions for example what is it i think it was he who does not know about service knows even less about mastership is one of the sufi sayings and i i believe that in the gospel of mark it says whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you must be slave of all so they know these, this about this, these people, you know, they, they knew what was involved in order to get higher consciousness. And that's what they've always been talking about. You know, one of the things, a couple of things, one, I want to go back to spinning a little bit, because I just was thinking of as a you're, child, you're hooked on spinning. Yeah. The, the act of <laughs> transcendence is not a doing. It's an, it's, it's more from my understanding and my little bit of experience is a state of non-doing that there's a, a stillness and a quietness state of being. in the state of being. And to go back to the spinning, because I, I was just having a childhood memory and I'll bet you did it too, is as a child spinning around, spinning around, spinning around and then falling down mm -hmm. and having this experience, which in a way is a transcendent experience. I don't, I don't know if you were a spinner as a child, but I used to get out of my not very nice ordinary reality and spin around on the grass and then fall down and the clouds would move and I, I'd be in this, Different I would call a transcendent state. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think that's true. We have, as, we, as Bob says in the book, we all have these transcendent states. So we have these 
altered states of consciousness all the time. It's just we're not aware aware of it too often. And But what we're saying is we need to develop it now because unless we are all um, beyond, our, we work beyond the self, we won't be solving our problems. We, we, we need to connect on a, in a different way. We need to really connect. Question that I brought in the very beginning here was, you know, looking at, can we have a direct experience of God? I, I personally think if I had a direct experience of God, it would kill me because I'm certainly not prepared. You know, you've got to be, you, it takes a lot of preparation to be a Jesus Christ or a Muhammad or, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't think we can treat that too lightly, but what we can do is we can find our place on the continuum and that is much more worthwhile, authentic and how, what we're here for than than we do if we just stick around in our small worlds, you know? I, I think what, one of the things that's important though about that, like you said, we ha all have transcendent experiences, but the shift to God 4.0, as I'm understanding from your book, is really a shift from this external deity that we worship and that gets put into religion and structures and is used a lot to, to manage the masses. Control, as you said, yes. Control. But there's this, and I'm a longtime meditator, and that place in meditation, uh, that those momentary glimpses of, of stillness, which also is timeless because in those places, in those still points, when you really hit those still points, uh, I don't know if you know the work of uh, Otto Scharmer, the theory I you work. I don't. Um, no. So what he talks about is presencing and the emergent future that always happens in the now. So creativity, innovation, all those aspects of this higher consciousness of this trans of this intuitive level of perception yeah right yeah. exactly yeah. and so but it's not but i think it's it's also but you know to go back to your question of of whether we could actually talk about and seeing god i am i am the truth the light the the life as christ said something like that takes uh, these are exceptional people, exceptional wise people. They're, they, they, they aren't. And, and I think for many of us, you've got to be very careful before you. It's almost like it's sort of like if you if you have the attitude of a child learning to walk, you can get it better. You know that suddenly it takes off, or as I said, learning a language. Suddenly it takes off, and you are in a different. You are. You have this other consciousness available to you but it is on a continuum. So it's not like I'm gonna say to you the next, the next step is that whatever. I'm not gonna be Muhammad or whatever. I don't have that kind of mission, but it is something that I think that we're saying in the book that we can collectively communicate and connect together at that level of consciousness and be able to solve our problems. If we're all switching, if we're all going, approaching the problem from the second system of cognition, then, then when we're in that continuum, 
then we will collectively have the solutions to the problems we have today. You know, I, I have trouble with the, it takes exceptional people. Surely the people were exceptional, but if you look at the history of the mystic, Teresa of Avila and, you know, uh, John of the Cross, and they were ordinary people. So many of the mystics had this experience that came through them, you know, and most of them didn't have all the preparation and all the, the things. They just had a mystical experience. And you when I say that. that's for yeah. extraordinary people, when I say that's for extraordinary, I mean, many of them had prayer and other things that they were doing, but to say that it's exceptional people, then it denies it's not me, then where is this oneness that happens in this state of godness, this state in, of... In connecting together in a community of world, the world community. Right. So the, so the self dissolves. So if the self dissolves, it can't be about extraordinary people because there's no self. Well, exactly. But, but I mean, if you're... To I don't know. I think I would think the herald, the, the the teachers and the prophets of the past. I've just read an amazing biography of Muhammad, and it's extraordinary what they what they went through, but still kept were teaching at a time when it's not like now when really we we have so much more information now than they had then. But is transcendent anything to do with information? understanding of the the neurobiology of transcendence i think makes a big difference to how you understand it, that experience it helps us to understand the experience but it doesn't give us the experience no because that that requires that requires work and that's i'm i'm I mean, I don't want to go on too much about this exception because I don't think it's necessary for us all to become uh, uh, I mean, Jesus or to, to be able to uh, do what we need to do now. And that's the point of the book, you know, that we have so much more that we that we can solve our problems, that we have this capacity to do so by forgetting ourselves, by, you know, and they've done studies now that <clears throat> really that that talk about virtues and how virtues are all have the same effect on on the brain they seem to and they've only done they've done forgiveness and gratitude i believe now but there are it's likely that that's why and there are certain people have said i forget which sufi it was said i my humility is for its own reasons you know it's yeah, we, no, we, virtue let's, let's say it say another way because first of all humility gratitude, being of service, always of letting go of self, right. being other, being other oriented, being uh, connect, more connected. Yes. And when we're looking at the, the, at least we can say when we're doing the work that you're talking about that you and Bob and Bob talked about for many decades is that the work enhances our creativity allows us to tap into an intuition that we normally in our narrative or story or sense of self would come up with that intuition and ability to connect with what I would call the emergent future, to have a sense of a greater sense of the future, which then takes place in the present, that we bring the future into us through this ability to slow down and transcend 
than the normal self, what we call the self. And that's a transcended state, right? Yeah, but it, it's uh, to say, to talk about a state, I think is, it, it uh, rather than talk about a state, transcendence is a faculty that you've got, it's a capacity that you've got that goes along beside you. It's sort of like if you were, if you were riding a bike and you, the, and you just got riding a bike and then you think, I wonder where I should go. And you go, you go and the direction's the right place. I mean, Bob used to say, you have no idea when this works and when it doesn't. How many times do you even quite simply just take the car and drive and you think, oh, I'll go this way. Maybe if you've gone the other way, you would have had an accident. You don't know. You know what I mean? Because so you don't know. You don't understand the the capacity, and I think it's 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 really um, detrimental to its development to say this is it, because you must keep open the doors open. It's not. Oh, I'm not saying this is it. I mean, it is a space, like we said, of timelessness and spaciousness. And these, these capacities, expanding these capacities to be related and recognize our interdependence of all of life, we really need those now because we're culturally, socially, and, and globally. Well, and I mean, it's really sad. I was listening to somebody. What's that, that film that's just come out that's the uh, analogy of, where, of uh, climate change with... Um... Don't look up. Anyway, don't look up. That's right. Don't look up. And the director was talking and he said, you know, this is and he he rightly said this is a time where we really need to communicate as humanity. And it's the worst time in our history of communication. Right. You know, because of all the things that constrain us to likes or dislikes or 140 characters or whatever. That's not. And what's holding us in this small world. Right. So what I'm saying is that these skills are really important because we're going through an initiation, a cultural initiation or rite of passage, which is to move out of the fundamentalism, the literalism and the, you know, all of the isms like that. And to tap into that deeper connection with all of life and transcending the anthropomorphism that we are so deeply in that we're objects in a world of objects. There's a world out there and I'm not connected to that, to this transcendent state (laughs) where I recognize, yes, I am. There's a deep knowing, you know, this, this, you know, this cup of tea right here connects me to the entire world, to the, to, to the, Ah, the earth. Literally, yes. Literally, yeah. I mean, literally. The the earth that grew it, the people that grew it, the things that, you know, the sun, the rain, everything is in this cup of tea, including what it took to make the cup as well as the tea. And that's analogous, right? I mean, you could do, you could do an analogy for that, couldn't you? To say, this is, this is the second system of cognition. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And I think it's, it's important now because we know how to do it and we, and we could, we could encourage, I mean, it's extraordinary. Bob, I think, has always found it very extraordinary, for example, that in the school system, you learn reading, writing, and arithmetic, but you don't know, learn who you are. You don't learn about human nature. You don't learn about normal cognition. 
how you to know, think. You don't, you don't learn how to think. You, you learn don't how learn anything. And so, how, you know, how do you start? You have to start. Um, you have to start by knowing who you are. You know, I, I think it's it's just crazy. And and people want to. You know, the moment you start talking about it, everybody wants to know more of how we can solve our collective problems. We all see it as collective problem. I don't know. I, you know, in the Tao, there's this. I can't. I can't remember it exactly, but it it's something about and it relates to the self, but it says, I, I don't know who you are, but I'll spend the rest of my days finding out. And there, when we say finding out who we are, it's like looking for a closure rather than keeping the, the, the window, because we're always changing and everyone else is changing. If I know who you are as my wife, or I know who my husband is, or I know who my boss is, I kill all that possibility of transcendence. So there's a part that's about keeping the door open and cultivating not knowing, to, to, in my sense, to bring us to a place of transcendence. How do we, how do we keep that knowing which, you know, knowing defines the, the circumference of our narrative and in our sense of self, which is, is always a limit. And transcendent is going beyond that. Beyond that. That's what we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Going beyond that and, and realizing that and trusting that you can, I think, mm -hmm. and that you can develop it and that it, it is our next step. I don't see how... Well, Bob certainly didn't see how we could solve our problems without higher consciousness, because it's certainly not going to happen with biological evolution. It yeah. takes too long. And that's why I think it's not an exceptional individual that gets to that place. Of You're stuck on that. I mean, I'm, I, I, think, uh, I think that those people who were exceptional then mm -hmm. probably exceptional then is no longer have to be called exceptional now because we're all we're all endowed with it we know how it works we know what we can do and we just have to get on with it and we have like, to make sure that it's in our culture this idea that that you know if, if you imagine from from a very young child you 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 grow up knowing that you you have a latent capacity you haven't used and you can you see bits of it you see mm -hmm. you see it happen in creativity you you can push it further you see that there's a, a function for logic and intellectuality and emotionality but this, that isn't all there is there's so much more than that uh, you know we, we we need to wrap up here pretty soon but i think given the times we're in in the massive separation alienation divisiveness anger what's happening right now is really important, this disillusion of the self. Yes, know the self, but the disillusion of, of myself. How, how can I, you know, Mark Nepo wrote a wonderful book and he talked about the two tribes. There's the, there's the tribe that says, you're different, go away. And there's the tribe that says, you're different, come teach me. And I That's think- That's the barriers that Bob describes in the book. Thick barriers and thin barriers. Exactly. The, the that he talks exactly, exactly like that. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. 
yeah, mm. the thin and thick. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's lovely to be with you, Sally. Is there anything, la- last things, there's so much more we could talk about. Uh, the three stages of consciousness and mushrooms and LSD and uh, being in the world of not and not of it. I think that's a that's a, that's the a that's the key to underline. Yeah, that's the key. That's the key. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So delightful to be with you. Thanks for taking the time and thank you for finishing Bob's book and and um, just getting the word out there and helping people to to really understand that there's something beyond our everyday normal, what we call normal reality. Well, it's a, it's a, it, it is an important issue. And I, so I was determined to finish it for him. And I encourage everybody to have a read. And if they like to read some of the teaching stories, there's uh, a, some of them at the back of the book too. Yes, I saw that. So again, the, the book is God 4.0 on the nature of higher consciousness and the experience called God. And um, how can people find out more about this? What is there a website that you? Yes, robertornstein.com. Robertornstein.com. Yes. All right. Sally, lovely to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.